I am Peter Thompson, uh, retired coxswain of the Whitby Lifeboat. I uh, served from 1966 to 1993. Well, the Rohilla rescue, it, it was uh, in uh, 1914, and uh, it was a hospital ship that was travelling from Scotland down to the war front, I think it was Belgium or somewhere like that, and uh, as it it came down the North Sea in a severe uh, northeaster gale, and of course in those days there was uh, no navigation aids; it was purely uh, going by dead and reckoning, which is a chart and a, and a compass and a watch to know where you actually were. And because of the wartime restrictions, uh, there was no lights on the shore. Uh, everything was dim, so uh, the vessel came down the North Sea more or less in complete darkness and a storm, and uh, because of the deviation of uh, correct navigation, then she hit the coast of Yorkshire, and uh, this was just a quarter of a mile to the east side of Whitby, and of course uh, she hit the uh, underwater shaft, which is very shallow, the bows rose up onto the, the top of that and the ship broke into three. The middle and the after section uh, settled down. The after section broke off immediately and rolled over and apparently a lot of lives were lost in that first uh, few minutes. Uh, the remaining part of the ship was sort of jammed on the shallower water with all the survivors still on it and uh, it was breaking up as they were sat there. Of course, Whitby lifeboat was called, but unfortunately the weather was so bad that it couldn't possibly have launched out of the harbour. Uh, there was 228 people on board, and uh, there was 85 uh, drowned altogether. A, a lot of them actually jumped into the sea in desperation. The whole incident lasted over three days, so I can imagine that... Uh, you know, the beginning of it was really dramatic, so people were uh, just drowning as the, the uh, wreck broke up. The lifeboat at Whitby, as I said before, it could not get out of the entrance, so it was dragged over the bridge and under what we call the scar underneath the cliffs, that's flat shale, a flat scar a quarter of a mile along the foreshore, purely by men using just muscle power to get opposite the wreck and uh, that lifeboat was launched twice and in those uh, first trip it brought 17 ashore and the second trip it brought 15 including the uh, five nurses and St John's ambulance men etc. By the time it had done those two rescues it was so badly hauled and uh, damaged by the rocks and the seas that it, it was just uh, abandoned and unfortunately broke up. Well, the next thing, because uh, the, the, there was no possibility of uh, uh, any further rescue from that boat, then the next lifeboat stationed near Whitby, which is about a mile and a half to the northwest of Whitby, she again was dragged over land and it was brought to the cliff top above the wreck and by men and uh, ropes and sh you know, sheer muscle power it was lowered down the 200-foot cliff onto the beach. And that lifeboat, the William Riley, she was launched twice, but uh, after tremendous 
you know, efforts by the crew, the weather was just too bad and it could only get within a few yards of the wreck and consequently they had to abandon any further rescues. Eventually, because there was no other assistance, even Scarborough lifeboat was launched and tried to come out. Even T's mouth was launched but uh, couldn't uh, get out. And eventually a motor lifeboat, bear in mind that this was a very uh, relatively new thing in the RMLI, motor lifeboat, and uh, she was launched, the Henry Vernon from uh, Tyne, and came down the 50-odd mile to the wreck and after taking on board a, a pilot from Whitby, uh, they eventually got round the inside of the wreck and rescued the last 50 survivors plus the ship's cat. And that's basically the story of the uh, Rohilla. But my father, in uh, 1914, I think he was seven year old, and he remembers his father taking him onto the cliff top overlooking the wreck and watching the whole thing as, as it unfolded. So he actually, as a, as a kid, seven year old, he witnessed the, uh, the horrors of that. They must have seen you know, men drowning and the rescues and everything else. So that would have created in my father a, a terrific interest in Anulai and of course as he grew up he, uh, he was in the war in the Royal Navy and when he came back he was big into boats so he uh, actually had two or three of his own pretty decent uh, cruisers and things he used to build them and he also became Commodore of the Yacht Club for I think it was three times and that's how he became the Onsec because of his uh, experience in, in those three things, the Rohilla, the interest, and the uh, yacht club. Yeah. So it was passions about him. When he was given the uh, secretary's job, uh, he uh, was making preparations for the lifeboat museum that he'd founded. And because I was in the army at the time, uh, coming home on leave and helping him got my interest, certainly in, in the Rohilla, because together we were building a model of the wreck. And the more interested I got, uh, the, the more, when I came on leave, I helped him. When, when I was uh, demobbed and came back home, uh, I was helping him in the museum on the very first inshore lifeboat in 1966 was introduced to Whitby. And while just working in the museum, uh, my dad said, uh, oh, they're trying out this new lifeboat tonight down on the beach. Would you like to come and, up, come and watch? So I said, yeah, no. So I shut the museum and uh, went down the beach. And sure enough, there was the, uh, the inshore lifeboat with the uh, current coxswain watching and one or two of the crew and people who had volunteered, three of them, who had volunteered to man this brand new inshore rescue boat. Uh, also, the inspector was there at the time, who was a big friend of my dad's, and I knew him anyway. And uh, we were watching it going through the surf, and uh, he turned around to me and said, do you fancy a go? And I said, oh, I'd love to. <laughs> so eventually I got kitted out and took this thing through the surf and thoroughly enjoyed it. 
came back and I said, well, that was great. How do you fancy joining the crew? Uh, I remember saying, well, I had a nasty back injury. I don't know whether I'd be fit. And uh, he said, oh, well, go and have a medical. And if you pass it, you can join the crew. And that's how I became a lifeboat man. I was one of the first crew, because incidentally at the time I was also a lifeguard on the beach working for the council. And the inshore lifeboat was stationed on the beach in uh, in an old-fashioned life um, council boathouse with a slipway. So as lifeguard, as, as soon as any incident appeared, then we were the first to get a call. And so we launched the lifeboat and uh, did a few rescues. I did two seasons on that, and because of the uh, rescues that I'd done, and I was given a thanks on Bellum for one of them, the uh, lifeboat mechanic was well past retirement age and he was due to go. So they said to me, why don't you apply for the job as a mechanic? So I did that and uh, within a month or two I was appointed station mechanic and then that was it. I was on the big boat forever. <laughs> I was always uh, a boatman following my dad's footsteps and I just loved the sea and the excitement you get from challenging those sort of waves because you've got a vessel you can do it in. You wouldn't do it in a private motorboat, but when you're given like a wave in a class lifeboat and it's the finest design to, to go in all weathers, then you get an awful lot of kick out of exercising in weather that most boats wouldn't even dream of doing. So that excitement's there anyway. When you put that excite, excitement together with actually doing the rescue because somebody is in trouble, then when you finish that particular rescue, don't matter whether it's a small one or a big one, then the satisfaction is something that you can't really describe. And that's what makes everybody get deeper and deeper into what's known as the RLI family. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, inspectors training you or whatever it is, uh, even people on shore like the secretaries and the operations managers, everybody gets really involved in uh, what is known as the Arnold family. And it's like a bug once you've got it, and it's job to get rid of it. <laughs> and even now, you know, I mean, I've retired since 93, and I'm still involved big time. Well, uh, up until last year when I handed over the museum and everything else, um, uh, I go with the uh, restored William Riley lifeboat that we uh, travelled the country with. That's a rowing lifeboat. Uh, built in uh, 1918, and uh, we restored it. We travel all over the country raising money for the RNLI. Um, we've been from top of Scotland to the bottom of England, Wales, and uh, we've raised hundreds of thousands of pounds in that. And that is all because we have been so dedicated to the RNLI that even after retirement, it's still nice to keep going. And it's only in the last two years, especially since COVID, <laughs> that uh, I've hung up my wellingtons, if you like, and decided, well, you know, I've done my bit. I'll help out what all I can. But, um, you know, you come to a stage, you know, I'm 84 now, and you think, well, I've got to leave it to the younger lads now. <laughs> I can't, uh, can't keep going forever, can you? But I, I, won't, uh, I won't turn me back on it, never.
The Anulai is the finest rescue service in the whole world. It's known for that. I am Elodie Broy. I am crew at Chiswick Lifeboat. If you want to hear more stories from the RNLI's 200 Voices collection, then head to rnli.org forward slash 200 voices or subscribe to the RNLI wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. 200 Voices is produced for the RNLI by Adventurous Audio Limited.